powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Happy New Year, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Derek Johnson. What a fantastic guest. And if you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 217, and we have a truly amazing episode line of you today. We have on the show Dr. Pascal Lee. Now, Dr. Lee is a planetary scientist and the co-founder and chairman of the Mars Institute. Pascal will be sharing much of his life's work with us, including how he got interested in physics, astronomy, and space, his adventures in Antarctica, his work with NASA, working with Carl Sagan, his extensive knowledge about the planet Mars and our possible future missions to it, and founding the Mars Institute. This is a two-part interview, and the second half will be dropping on Thursday, January 4th, 2024. So let's not waste any time and get Dr. Lee out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show the chairman of the Mars Institute and one of the smartest men I've ever had the privilege of speaking with, Dr. Pascal Lee. <laughs> Dr. Lee, welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today? Oh, Derek, call me Pascal. The weather is nice. I live in San Jose, California. We have about 300 days of sunshine per year. All right. So with the pandemic now winding down, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, I mean, I for me and my family, it was a breeze in the sense that nobody got sick and we were able to stay safe. Uh, however, I have to say that to me, it was a bit of an eye opener as to how, you know, even our modern society can respond to to a pandemic like this. And I was really dismayed by how, by by the fuss that was made about having to wear a mask, for example. I mean, you know, it's one of those inconveniences that everybody should understand is first of all, temporary, second is for the common good, not just yourself, but people around you who might be more vulnerable, not to mention the people in the healthcare industry. And, I don't know. It was just such a such a small deal to have to wear a mask for that period of time, and it turned into, you know, claims of infringement on people's freedom. I mean, if your freedom is so thinly anchored that it would be threatened by having to wear a mask during a pandemic, you know, you you are in trouble, more trouble than you think. But I mean, honestly, the the you know, unfortunately, we, I think we lost probably thousands, if not tens, if not hundreds of thousands 
more people than we might have if somehow we all stuck to wearing a mask for that period of time and and weathered it through. Uh, so I, you know, I mean, to me, the biggest difference between us today and people in the Middle Ages is science and technology. I mean, you know, we we eat and digest the same way. We wear clothing every day, even a little bit. But the biggest difference between life today and the life before is is our knowledge of science and technology and how that has transformed our society. Uh, and you know, for the better when it comes to healthcare. And I think that we really should should be trusting of our of our healthcare professionals when they recommend that we wear a mask. I mean, even if it's overkill, it's it's okay. It's not an infringement on my freedom. It's it's just a good measure of protection for for others. You know, so I, I didn't see it as a selfish. I didn't see it as, as something that you know one should be selfish about and say you know not me i will never wear a mask i mean geez it's not about you it's about others right anyway that's that's so you asking how did i weather through COVID? well i weathered through COVID fine but i i, I think many people should have as well and and they did and i, re- I really um um uh, regret that that was the case. I, I wish we had a better collective response as a society. Hmm. So every journey has a beginning. Yours begins in Hong Kong. What was it like to grow up there? Well, Hong Kong is a, was an urban jungle. I mean, when I was growing up there, it was the time of Bruce Lee. Hmm. Uh, so Hong Kong was a British colony, of course, by then, but it was still not quite the megapolis that it is today, or megapolis however you say that. Um, it was a gentler and slower time in Hong Kong. Uh, and my little child, my father was an architect in Hong Kong. My, my mom worked there too. Um, my father was Chinese originally, and uh, my mother is French. And they, they both met in England while they were studying in England. My father studied architecture there, and my mom uh, English. So anyway, they, they met for about three days in total over the course of six months, and they decided to get married. And they stayed married all these years. Uh, and I was one of the first products of that union. So I was born in Hong Kong, spent my little childhood there. And, you know, I guess for somebody who ended up going into space science and astronomy, it it's possibly the worst place <laughs> to have started. I mean, there's no night sky you can easily see or to speak of. You're still... You know, in this urban jungle, but uh, it, it was a it was a good, charming, uh, interesting place to to grow up in. I mean, one of the immediate consequences, of course, of that was that I I went to Chinese school as a little kid, Catholic Chinese school, mind you, but uh, Chinese school, and and I, I you know my first two languages were English because Hong Kong was a British colony, and that's what my parents spoke to each other. And, and then Chinese because half my family was Chinese and, you know, we were there. I, very early in my life, I got steeped into this uh, two very strong cultures, both the French and the Chinese big lovers of food. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, claim, I tend to claim that I know my food. And then I, I had a younger brother, Marco, who's still, of course, uh, my younger brother and um, who... Um, and we had a we were just two years apart. We were very close. We we grew up together in Hong Kong. 
What took you to France? Well, yeah, so France was next. I was not doing well in school. I was spending way too much time uh, watching television. So you're talking about, you know, the Green Hornet with Bruce Lee. You're talking about the Thunderbirds, the puppet show, you know, the sci-fi puppet show from Jerry Anderson in the UK. And then, of course, Star Trek and Lost in Space (laughs) and and all these classic American sci-fi shows. So I, I was just spending way too much time getting becoming an expert at those things. And so my parents sat me down and say, look, I th- we think it's time for you to go to boarding school in, you know, in, in France, where you just focus on your studies a bit. I mean, you know, in Hong Kong, we had a classroom of 44 students and I was consistently ranked 43rd. There was ranking in the classroom at the time. So, you know, here I was needing to, to do better. And then once once I went to boarding school in France near Paris, my life really changed. I became very studious. I wanted to do well. I wanted to make my parents happy. I was I was seeing my grandparents on my mother's side over the on weekends. Uh, they were very lovely to me. And and so I spent the rest of my schooling growing up in France. I, after boarding school, I went to Paris, uh, you know, University of Paris, the the Sorbonne. I studied physics first, and then I studied, I went for a master's degree in, in engineering and geology and geophysics. Now, France, France actually was a turning point for me because even as early as in boarding school, I started to, of course, get interested in, in sort of not just space as a sci-fi realm, but space as a, you know, as a potential area for profession. And the most influential books I read at the time was Carl Sagan's um, The Cosmic Connection. So this this is a book he wrote well before he became well famous with Cosmos and the TV series and the book Cosmos. He wrote a, a smaller book called The Cosmic Connection, and it was about his life as a planetary scientist. And in particular, he, he describes how he was driving to JPL one morning to to discover for the first time what the surface of Mars looked like. And I, I was really enthralled by that, by that book, which I read under my blankets in boarding school after curfew. You know, I mean, it was a page turn. I couldn't, I couldn't drop it. So, so at, at that point, I, I decided that, number one, it wasn't just space that I wanted to do, but I wanted to be a planetary scientist. I wanted to go explore planets. And second, uh, I had to go to America someday. Because, you know, there was astronomy at the time in France and there was a burgeoning rocketry program, but I, you know, I needed, I needed to be in a, in a land where people were going to the moon and, you know, landing things on Mars. So that was America to me. So that's, that's, I think, when my little American dream, my big American dream, but little me started dreaming the American dream. It was back in France in boarding school. After college, I still had a year of national service to do. Uh, at the time, there was still a draft in France. I was a French citizen. I, I had to be, uh, and I was actually all in favor of doing a year of national service. I just wanted it to be you know, useful and meaningful, uh, not just a win for France, but <laughs> a win for me, if at all possible, you know. So, um, and I found out that there was this one position that they would offer to a geologist every year 
at the French Antarctic Station, and you had to go there for an entire year, and you would you would you know s- study geology and more importantly you would make geophysical measurements measurements of the magnetic field and measurements of earthquakes, and it was actually a military position because. Uh, you know, one of the things we had to measure with earthquakes were other countries' nuclear tests. Uh, and so I was I was trained in detecting <laughs> nuclear tests in seismograms as much as natural earthquakes as well, and sent to Antarctica for an entire year. So that that was a, I mean, you were asking me just about my life in France, but that, I, I include that as part of my life in France because it was in the surface of France at the time. Uh, so I spent an entire year of, in fact, 402 days uh, in Antarctica, at, at mostly at the French base, although we went on some, you know, multi-week excursions overland on the ice cap of Antarctica as well. And that was really a life-changing experience for me. I wanted to go to Antarctica mostly because I knew that it would be a bit like being on Mars. Uh, it, it'd be like essentially being on, an, on a mission on another world. And, you know, you're still on Earth, you're not obviously in space, but it had all the ingredients of being, you know, a good stepping stone to one day going to other planets. So that had a huge appeal to me, um, that dimension of being a sort of an otherworldly experience. And so I I have to say, I that was such a motivation that I, I didn't feel the isolation in any hard way or the, um, you know, I didn't miss the luxuries back home. I mean, they were all minor inconveniences. I was just completely taken by the incredible positive experience being Antarctica in Antarctica was. I mean, one of the things that we did down there was you know, every wintering person, when we were 31 of us, only guys at the time, every wintering personnel was offered a helicopter ride before the winter over, before the last ship sailed. Okay. And so this was my first time stepping into a helicopter. And I, you know, by the luck of the draw, I had front seat. Okay, great. And we took off from the base, from the French base, Dumont Dioville. And it's a it's a coastal station, so you know in the summer you see liquid water, but then during the winter you really locked in and in, in sea ice. It was the summer. We took off, and the helicopter started flying towards a gigantic glacier that was releasing, calving ice icebergs. So here we were flying between gigantic walls of ice on either side, and then eventually we we flew out to sea, like out to the open sea in a helicopter. And then we flew towards this iceberg and we landed on this iceberg with penguins jumping into the water on, on all sides. And, you know, sorry for the disturbance of the penguins, but it was such an incredible, you know, marvel of engineering, this helicopter. To me, it was like the lunar module of the earth. And I swore to myself that, you know, I mean, I had already learned to fly as a as a kid. I wanted to, you know, be an aviator as well. So, so I I had flown gliders quite a bit. I was a glider pilot by the time I went to Antarctica, but but I had never flown a helicopter. And so after I came back, uh, since we were paid to be down there, but hadn't heard to spend the money, we 
I'd saved up quite a bit. And once I came to America to go to graduate school, I learned how to fly helicopters in, in America. And that's also part of the American dream. <laughs> I became a commercial pilot and a, even a helicopter flight instructor. Uh, and I'm st- still currently a helicopter flight instructor. But anyway, it it all of this goes back to this incredible moment and opportunity that going to Antarctica was for me. You have a very special relationship with Antarctica. How many expeditions have you made there? Well, that was the first trip. And then, of course, yeah, you're right. You, you sort of fall in love with that. You, you either hate it and, you know, you just don't want to ever go back there again. Uh, or, or you really are attracted towards that kind of experience. So I, I found myself in the latter category. Uh, I just couldn't have enough of it. So I, after Antarctica, in fact, while I was going down, sailing down to Antarctica, we were traveling down, I should say. We flew from Paris to Singapore, flew from Singapore to uh, Melbourne in Australia, from Melbourne to Hobart in Tasmania. And then we boarded a a ship, an icebreaker that took us down to the French station. In Singapore, I posted one application to one graduate school in the U.S., and guess where? It was to go to Cornell, uh, where Carl Sagan uh, was was based. But I wasn't even trying to work with Carl Sagan because he fundamentally is a chemist, and I was more interested in geology, geophysics. So, so I actually applied to work with his um, with somebody who was once his postdoc, but was now also a full professor at Cornell, who was Joe Viverka. And, and so I applied to, to Cornell, and sometime during my winter over, I found out, I got this telex, at the time there was no email or anything, uh, I got this telex informing me that I'd, I had been accepted to graduate school at Cornell, and that I was expected there the following fall. So after Antarctica, I, went, I came to America, and I, I went to graduate school. While I was in graduate school, I started getting offers, and of course I expressed interest too, but I started getting offers to join the US Antarctic Meteorite Search Program to go back to Antarctica, since I had some experience down there already, to, to go back on some more uh, slightly higher risk missions uh, where we would go to places that had never been explored before, you know, near the South Pole, so farther from McMurdo than ever before. Uh, anyway, they, they were doing, uh, I mean, the risk is always very well managed, actually, but they were doing some some more uh, challenging uh, search deployments, and somehow I was, I was invited to go. So uh, I was really happy about that. That, you know, of course, I, I was still in grad school, so I had to get my advisor to agree to let me go. And of course, he did. He was very nice, very supportive. So this this was my second trip. I went the second time I went to Antarctica was to search for meteorites for eight weeks, roaming the ice fields on snowmobiles, looking for meteorites. And incidentally, if you've never uh, done that, I, I can't I, I can't encourage you more than to somehow find a way to do that. It's the most incredible. First of all, you're in Antarctica, of course, but second, you know, you're roaming around on snowmobiles all day which is huge, a huge amount of fun in a place that has, you know, no barriers, no fences, nothing. So it's, 
it's free roaming. Just be careful of the crevasses. And then every other rock or pebble that you run into is a rock from space. It's sitting there on the ice because it came from above. And uh, you, you're going to pick up a piece of an asteroid. And then the next meteorite might be the piece, a piece of the core of another asteroid because it's an iron meteorite. The third piece might be a piece from the moon. Uh, another meteorite might be a rock from Mars. And so, you know, you are, you're literally encountering other worlds on our planet by doing something like this. And so as if just being in Antarctica roaming the ice wasn't exciting enough, you have this extra dimension of, of essentially picking up pieces of other worlds. So, so uh, that was just super exciting for me. And so that was the second trip. Uh, later on, uh, after I graduated, I, I had once I joined NASA, I was I had opportunities to go back um, a couple more times. Uh, this time to serve as the uh, scientist correcting the homework of a robotic rover <laughs> that was designed to look for meteorites. So, uh, Carnegie Mellon Universities uh, and NASA had a program to develop a rover called Nomad to go down to Antarctica look for meteorites robotically. The idea was that, you know, why subject humans to so much hardship uh, when a robot could do this job? And I started looking at other people who had been with me to Antarctica. Are they out of their minds? Who, who, who on earth ever said this was hardship? You know, this is the last thing we want to be replaced by a robot for. Uh, but anyway, we, we, we played along with the exercise. And of course, the robot would run into things and identify rocks that may or may not be meteorites. And I was there to, to sort of help verify that. Um, so, so we did two deployments. But then this time, once was with a private organization that NASA and Carnegie Mellon were chartering. And then another time was with the Chilean government. The Chilean Air Force actually flew us down to Antarctica. So I've been to Antarctica. I spent maybe five summers now in Antarctica plus one winter over. And they've been with the French, the American, the Chilean, and a private program. So I've had a, a, a buffet of, of, um, of ways to go to Antarctica. That's amazing. So I would like to know what it's like to work with Carl Sagan at, at Cornell. Yeah, Carl was incredible. Uh, he, I think you know, it's quite simply, he, he lives up as a, as a personal human being he lives up to the aura that he had as a public figure. Uh, I mean, he wasn't, of course, distant as a human being. On, on the contrary, he was very warm, very uh, approachable. Um, Carl was teaching uh, that year, and this is already towards the end of his life, he was teaching a course in science writing for non-science majors. And uh, it was the topic was I think the exploration of the solar system, the search for life, something like that. I became the TA for that class, the one TA, and in fact, I turned out to be the last TA that ever served with Carl. You know, three thousand students at Cornell applied <laughs> for that course. We had to down select the applicants to uh, just twenty-five, something like that, and then and then so I was part of that process, but Carl was very, you know, 
fair and pragmatic about it. He, he really wanted a diverse class and good representation of different backgrounds. Um, and, uh, and then because the class consisted of in students writing essays every other week, uh, the essays had to be graded and Carl wanted me to be at home with him on Saturday afternoons uh, grading student essays. So, so here I was in his living room with his wife Anne, you know, walking around and Carl and I uh, crashing in the sofas in the living room uh, with all these papers we were grading and passing to each other with notes. Uh, it was just an incredible experience uh, to, to, to be, you know, to be working with him like that. I remember in his uh, living room, there was this uh, mock-up of the Rosetta Stone. So for, for people who might not know what the Rosetta Stone looks like, it's like a, you know, an irregularly cut giant slab of black rock. But on the polished side of this slab of black rock, uh, there is the same text in three different ancient languages. One of them is ancient Greek, but the other one was uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. And at the time, the reading of hieroglyphics had been lost. Uh, nobody knew in the world how to read hieroglyphics anymore. And thanks to this stone, this Rosetta stone, which was found in Rosetta, uh, 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 okay, well, first of all, it was found by Napoleon's army, okay, as they were uh, uh, essentially robbing Egypt of its antiquities. Uh, but then Napoleon wasn't able to get this stone back to France, although once it was on site, it was studied by one of his uh, scientists, Champollion, who was a linguist. And Champollion was able to, to decipher hieroglyphics for the first time based on the fact that this text was, was told in different languages, one of which was known, two of which were known. Anyway, um, but the, the Rosetta Stone never made it back to France. Uh, Napoleon's ships were essentially defeated uh, his navy was defeated in Abu Kir, which is ironically just off of Gaza, uh, more or less, by the British Navy. And so the British Navy grabbed the Rosetta Stone, took it back to the British Museum, and, and it still sits there today. Uh, but the, anyway, for Cosmos, Carl had created a replica, a full-size replica of the Rosetta Stone, taken it to Egypt uh, for the Cosmos TV series to talk about the Rosetta Stone. And he was telling me how how hard it was for him to get it out of Egypt a second time. So, okay, because by then the Egyptians had had wised up, uh, wisened up, uh, and uh, and were really reluctant to let go of anything that looked like an antiquity. So so he had to to uh, to make some phone calls to be allowed to take the Rosetta Stone replica out of Egypt uh, and back to his living room in Ithaca, New York. So anyway, I like the story a lot. And, um, and uh, hmm. you know, it was, it was one of those Cosmos stories. Uh, but, you know, Carl, Carl was really a, a very thorough uh, scientist as well. I mean, you know, because of his fame, there were a lot of people who were jealous of him during his, the prime of his career. Uh, you know, he, 
he had received nominations to join the U.S. Academy of Science, but you know other people objected, you know, on grounds that were ridiculous, and so he never got elected to the National Academy, uh, which is really a, a shame. You know, he was a very brilliant scientist, a very impactful one, and um, <clears throat> and a very thorough popularizer of science. I mean, you read his books today, you realize that he he wasn't cutting corners in terms of the accuracy that he was putting in describing things. He, he was really being uh, very accessible language-wise, but also very thorough. He, he would tell me that every time he wrote a book, um, the, 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 first, the, the first step for a chapter would be for him to sort of narrate the chapter into a, a microphone, into a, a recorder. And so, you know, he, he, some chapter is coming up, so he, he just talks about that chapter. And that, that gets turned to his assistant who types it up, and then uh, it becomes the first draft of that chapter. And typically, Carl said, you know, he would go through 13 drafts like this of each chapter, uh, each, you know, a few weeks apart so that he had time to approach it freshly each time. Uh, until until he felt it was it was good enough for for publication, okay. So a lot of fact checking, a lot of wording, wordsmithing. Uh, he was an artist in in the way he was popularizing his science. Amazing. What do you remember about getting to participate in Voyager Two? Yes. So well, this is part of the American dream. I show up at Cornell after my experience in Antarctica, about to start graduate school in August, you know, classes start in late August, right? So I show up on August 15th in Ithaca, New York. And my advisor, Joe Viverka, who was really extraordinary in his own right, he, Joe was on the camera team of every spacecraft in the solar system that had a camera on board period. And so he was on the camera team of Voyager one and two. And on July, on August 28th of that year, 1989, Voyager two was going to fly by Neptune for the first time. So I show up in Ithaca August 15th and uh, Joe Viverka says to me, Pascal, don't unpack. Would you like to go to JPL with us? Now, this is quite incredible. I mean, I, I show up, you know, to start classes or something. <laughs> and he says, no, don't unpack. We're going to go to Pasadena, to JPL. And for the next few weeks, you're going to be seeing Voyager data uh, with us. We'll be the first people in the world to see close-up pictures of Neptune and, and its moons before they even release to, to the media and to the public. Um, and of course, I said, I mean, yes. <laughs> When do I leave? But that's that's how I got involved in Voyager two and and its final flyby of Neptune. And you know, Voyager Voyager one and two left the Earth in 1977. I mean, I was still uh, in high school at the time, uh, and of course, I remember their launches. At some point in '79 and early '81, they 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 got to to Jupiter. So, so of course, uh, I was still in high school <laughs> for that, <laughs> and remember 
the volcanoes of EO, the icy smooth surface of Europa, all of this. And then by the time it flew by Saturn, I was in grad, in grad school, but in France. Uh, and then by the time it flew by Uranus, which was in January of 86, uh, I was, I was in college in Paris, you know, becoming a geophysicist. This was before going to Antarctica. And then after I came back from Antarctica, uh, here it was about to fly by Neptune, its final big flyby, Voyager 2. And sure enough, I became part of it, which is so incredible because, like I said, this mission was something that was so remote, so part of an American dream when I was growing up as a kid. And all of a sudden, thanks to America, I was, um, was going to be front row at JPL on this mission. My part was quite well-defined and limited. Of course, I was just a grad student. Um, I was going to look specifically at the photos of Triton. Triton is a lot, it's the largest moon of Neptune. And it's probably a captured moon because it's revolving around Neptune in the opposite direction of, of the planet itself and of its other moons. Uh, and it's also in a slightly inclined orbit uh, so, so Triton is a is weirdo, and sure enough, the surface was incredibly uh, interesting with ice formations we had never seen before. Uh, you know, we're talking about nitrogen ice here, so cold out there. Anyway, uh, yeah, that was Voyager 2 for me. That's amazing. What was your role in the Homer mission? And for my listeners, can you explain what that mission was about? Homer is a mission that never happened. NASA and JPL had launched the very successful MER missions, M-E-R, Mars Exploration Rovers. But the Mars Exploration Rovers were going to look at the chemistry of the soil on Mars. They were going to look at signs of past water being present on Mars. The, for example, looking for hydrated minerals so minerals that would have formed in the past when they when the ground was in contact with with water liquid water uh, so at some point nasa opened up to the community the science community hey why don't you guys propose uh another mission to mars a mars scout mission so something not too complicated not as big as in, and involved as the two MER rovers that NASA had just sent, but something a little more focused and uh, propose it to, to us, to NASA. So amazingly, I lined up uh, Boeing as our industrial partner. This turned out to be the, the first uh, Mars mission that Boeing was a prime contractor on. Uh, and so again, American dream. <laughs> okay, <laughs> little me, little me, uh, being the principal investigator, so the the, the science lead of this uh, of this uh, newly proposed rover mission to 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 Mars, and we call this mission Homer because it stood for H two O Mars Exploration Rover. We were we wanted to find water there today. So it had things like a radar to look underground to see if we could find ice. 
it had other instruments that were also going to look more specifically at whether or not we could we could detect the presence of water at the surface of Mars today. Uh, so it was a beautiful follow up to to um, to the Mir missions, and um, and because it ended up being called Homer, all the instruments on the rover were named after Simpsons characters. <laughs> so. Uh, we we didn't we didn't we figured we'd just submit that to NASA and then we actually had the the good problem to have which is to be selected by NASA that then we would ask for permission uh, but um, to to use to use these names but we figured we would be allowed anyways you know it's NASA flying to Mars why wouldn't you allow <laughs> your instruments to be named after Simpson characters so. Um, uh, anyway, the mission was not selected by NASA. They, they picked another mission, and the mission that they picked was Phoenix, which turned out to be a very good mission. It flew to Mars and, and landed on Mars in 1997, and uh, it, did, it did great things. Fair enough. Oh, in, uh, not in 1997, in 2007. Sorry. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dr. Pascal Lee. Mitch, as you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths, you know that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Pay attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Hello, Duval Nation, Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy.
17.9 cycles ago, us machines defeated the humans. Now, we're living the good life here in Droidston, Manitoba. Morning, Gif! Morning, Dust! But there's still the problem of human infestation. That's what it's time to call Human Be Gone. Human Be Gone! Wherever you get your podcasts. Human Be Gone! This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. We're Sam's Army and the gang's all here Sam's Army and the gang's all here Sam's Army and the gang's all here For the cup and then to drink some beer Oi, this is Chad from The Shame We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com Or listen to it on almost all the streaming services We'll see you down the pub Cheers everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 217 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the co-founder and chairman of the Mars Institute, Dr. Pascal Lee. I had Dr. Seth Shostak of SETI on the show last year. What brought you to the SETI Institute? Ah, so after Cornell... I, I got hired immediately at NASA Ames for postdoc. So not hired permanently, but I, I had a postdoc, meaning that that's what you do as a transitional thing after you graduate. You have your, you know, your, your, your fresh, freshly labeled as a scientist. So now you get to, to do some science of your own. Uh, so that's what a postdoc is. So I, I got a postdoc at NASA Ames. So while the postdoc was of limited duration, it lasted only three years. And I managed, of course, to, to get our Arctic research project going at that time when I was at NASA, per se. But any three years, you, it's a National Research Council fellowship that you get. It's only good for three years. And, and so I wanted to stay, however, in the Bay Area near NASA Ames. I wanted to continue this affiliation that I had with NASA. Uh, but, uh, you know, since I wasn't a U.S. citizen, I couldn't be hired as a civil servant. Plus, you know, I... You know, civil service is not sort of a government job. Is not exactly a good fit for me. I'm a, maybe a little bit too. Uh, I mean, if you know, if they were asking me to go to Mars, I'd I'd, I'd do that probably as a government employee. <laughs> but otherwise, I'm happier as a as a 
free-ranging scientist at a research institute. Anyway, uh, the SETI Institute was right there. And of course, I had been interested in SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I'd be interested in SETI since uh, forever, but the SETI Institute already then was doing a lot more than this traditional search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, with radio telescope, like, like in contact, you know, you're listening to radio waves. Uh, they, the SETI Institute is a nonprofit research organization that, that studies very broadly the possibility of life in the universe, the prevalence of life in the universe, the potential distribution of life in the universe, uh, the conditions necessary for life in the universe, and also the advancement of life in the universe, which includes therefore space travel and space flight. So I found in the SETI Institute, you know, like a perfect, in fact, a thrilling organization that I could join and be part of and, and really dabble in research in all these different facets of, of the search for life, which of course I think is a, is a major question that we have about the universe and, you know, and ourselves actually. Um, so when I, I had to interview for the SETI Institute and the SETI Institute was founded by Frank Drake, who's, uh, who just passed away um, not too long ago. Uh, Frank Drake uh, is the Drake of the Drake equation, a very famous formula that gives you the number N of capital N of advanced civilizations in our galaxy. And, you know, the formula is quite simple. It's the multiplication of seven terms. N is the rate of star formation times the fraction of stars that have planets times the fraction, the number of those planetary systems that have environments that are suitable for life times the fraction of those planets that are suitable for life that actually have life on them times the fraction of those that have life on them that where life actually becomes intelligent to be defined uh, times the fraction of those planets with intelligent life on them that where the life actually becomes an advanced civilization and by that we mean capable of interstellar communication not necessarily engaging in it, mind you, but capable of it. Uh, times, finally, the last and seventh term, uh, the average longevity of an advanced civilization in our galaxy, which, of course, is a, is a big unknown. But if we knew the value of each one of these seven terms, you could calculate N, the number of advanced civilizations in our galaxy. So anyway, Frank Drake had proposed this formula uh, and is essentially considered to be the father of SETI, the father of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So anyway, SETI was set up right outside NASA Ames, and it was common for people to become who wanted to stay at NASA Ames, but were not going to be hired as government employees by NASA and by civil servants. SETI could, could hire you, and then you could continue working at NASA. So at first, you know, I, I was more focused on keeping my relation with NASA going and joining SETI. But then over the years, I've become really enamored with all of SETI Institute's mission. Uh, when I first interviewed there to get a, to be hired, I remember I was, I gave a talk to the board of the SETI Institute. <laughs> Frank Drake was in the audience. And after his, uh, after I gave my, 
my talk, which was about the search for life on Mars, he he leaned over to his assistant and said, let's hire him under N sub E. <laughs> so apparently scientists at the SETI Institute were hired to address one or more terms of the Drake equation, which I thought was really a very methodical way of, of building your workforce. You know, you have a formula with unknowns and you are in a research organization or you're going to hire scientists to address each one of these unknowns. And I thought it was just, you know, very, very fun way of structuring your, your workforce <laughs> uh, at the time. And when you, when you think about it, you know, people do that in engineering all the time. You know, you have different divisions because you need experts in electricals and mechanical engineering and, you know, aerodynamics, whatever. If you're building a rocket, you have different specialties. You have to fill slots. Uh, and it was the same thing with SETI. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence requires a number of specific expertises. And so one of them was N sub E, the number of environments that are suitable for life in a planetary system. So if you were interested, like I was, in uh, figuring out if the Earth was the only planet with life in, in our solar system, or could there be Mars as well, or other places, uh, you were addressing N sub E and, and would be hired under that, under that term. So by the by the Drake equation, then basically we are most probably alone in the Milky Way galaxy. Well, uh, that's what I think, but that's not the most popular view at the SETI Institute, or or in fact, uh, for for most uh, people, uh, you know, if you, I mean, so here's the thing: uh, we are all realizing, of course, now that life is the result of a natural process, uh, you know, one should not underestimate the complexity and wonderful results that can be achieved by biochemistry. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, it's very powerful chemistry and physics, but, um, you know, if life appeared on earth, it should therefore appear elsewhere if conditions are right. And if given enough time and opportunity, it's intelligence should emerge and an advanced civilization as well. And, and so therefore we're probably not alone. There should be others like us, or I mean, different physically, presumably, but like us in the sense that we would be an intelligent society seeking to communicate with others and capable of space travel, that there should be others elsewhere. And this idea is obviously not even extreme. Uh, it pervades our culture i mean star trek is all about that right it's one civilization based on earth but then encountering multiple intelligent civilizations across the galaxy star wars is like that it's taking place in a galaxy far far away but it's nevertheless populated by many intelligent societies and in fact they all hang out at bars <laughs> they play music you know, and part of us believes that, you know, we're very open-minded by being open to the idea that we're not alone out there and, you know, there's got to be others. But what I have been doing with this Drake equation uh, in recent years uh, is to sort of take a closer look at it and assign some numbers uh, pragmatically, like making as little assumptions as possible 
using the earth as the one example that we have because even though the earth might not be representative or might be a bit unique at least it's a data point as opposed to us speculating widely on you know the longevity of civilizations or i mean you know let, let's look at what earth tells us and so let, let's plug in those numbers so if you plug in those numbers some of these terms of the drake equation are very well known like the rate of star formation in our galaxy it's it's about 20 per year on average uh so that's a relatively well-known number other terms we really don't know what they are what's the longevity of an average civilization in our galaxy so instead of saying like some people will widely claim well it's a million years okay well where's the evidence for that i mean we we haven't been an, an advanced civilization for a million years in fact we've only been advanced in the sense that we are capable of tech, of interstellar communication since um the late 1800s and that's when maxwell james clerk maxwell and uh, Scottish physicist came up with Maxwell's equations, which are beautiful equations that describe how radio waves and light waves behave as electromagnetic radiation. So it's a combination of electric fields and magnetic fields interacting, one turning into another, uh, that, that essentially describes what light and radio waves behave like and uh, it's a breakthrough because once you understand that then you can generate electromagnetic waves you can generate a radio wave you can generate a light wave you you just put in the right combination of electric fields and magnetic fields varying over time so so we've technically been an advanced civilization once again defined as capable of interstellar communication only for about 120 years, maybe something like that. So, you know, claiming that at this stage, a society like ours could survive a million years is just, well, it's wishful thinking. I, I, I hope that's true, but there's absolutely no evidence for that. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the history of societies on earth, they have lasted typically anywhere from, I mean, civilizations really, anywhere from 500 years to, to maybe a couple thousand years. Uh, and even if you look at human society as a whole, being one civilization since ancient Egypt, well, okay, we've lasted about 5,000 years. So uh, what I did was I went through the seven terms of the Drake equation and when it comes to life, the, the example that Earth tells us is that life itself is probably very common as a phenomenon because it appeared very early in the Earth's history. As soon as there were conditions allowing liquid water to be stable at the surface of the Earth, life emerged very quickly. The earliest rocks that we have fossil, I mean, examples of still from the earliest ages of the Earth that were laid down in the water environment, sedimentary rocks, uh, at least initially that's what they were, uh, these rocks show signs of life in them. There are biosignatures, there are, there's a chemical signature of life. life. Life was basically there pretty much as soon as it could in association with liquid water being present 
for stable amounts of time. Now, probably in reality, not immediately, but within a few million to tens to hundred million years, but that's, that's nothing compared to the four and a half billion years of the age of the earth. And so for all intents and purposes, uh, the Drake equation, I'm okay with the fraction of planets that sea life emerge if conditions are right for that fraction to be close to 100%. Because at least with the one data point that we have, that's what it says on Earth. It appeared essentially immediately. Now, on the other hand, uh, intelligence, and by that you can define that as life that is able to really shape and reshape its environment through designed technology. Okay, so we're not talking about the beaver that changes the course of a river by doing something that's instinctive or a bird building a nest. I mean, those are beautiful forms of intelligence of life in general, but but they're not, you know, they're not, each nest is not uh, a bird rethinking it from an engineering standpoint. Uh, there's, there's most, I mean, the vast majority of, of it is done by instinct. Whereas humans became capable of improving on their tools and on their designs from one generation to the next. And that happened about a million years ago when Homo erectus, uh, our ancestor in East Africa, our most direct ancestor in East Africa, uh, emerged. And Homo erectus mastered fire, could build uh, rudimentary tools was uh, shaping stones and migrating to hunt. So uh, it was uh, a huge step forward for humanity at that point. And from then on, it becomes history in the sense that you can trace uh, how, or even or prehistory. But the point is, you you can you can trace how uh, generations after generations humans have then uh, moved across continents, settled Europe and Asia from, from East Africa and eventually the Americas, uh, it, it becomes history. So, so the point here is that, but that didn't show up until a million years ago again, and that is a tiny fraction of the history of the earth. Uh, all this time, Never did dinosaurs ever get to the point where somehow they felt the need to, to build tools. Uh, all this time, um, you know, no, no animal, simple or complex, came up with anything that we would call technology. Uh, and so, and there are also many intelligent beings on Earth that do not create technology, you know, orcas and other whales. We know they're smart. They're very social animals, uh, elephants, uh, octopi, all super smart, but they, they don't have, they are either trapped in an environment that doesn't allow them to really be aware of the cosmos, uh, of the night sky, explore. Uh, they, they don't have, they, they, they could be intelligent, but they're not advanced civilizations. So my point is about this is that uh, 
life itself is probably common in the universe and across our galaxy. And I wouldn't even be surprised if we found it on planets in our own solar system, on Mars, uh, you know, in the icy oceans of Europa or Enceladus around Saturn. But intelligent life, based on the Earth example, showed up very late in a very happenstance way and is, is just not an automatic result. And that to me, if you plug in the numbers of how late intelligent life appeared on Earth compared to the age of the Earth, uh, gives you a measure of how rare it might be. That is going to bring down the number N catastrophically. Because even though we're finding planets around most nearby stars at this point, and the planetary phenomenon is probably very common, it doesn't make any difference because that, that's what we had assumed all along anyway. Uh, we're not really, you know, having much larger chances of finding people. This number that is the fraction of planets where there is life that's intelligent that actually becomes, sorry, that where there is life where it actually becomes intelligent, that fraction is, is probably very small of order one or two in 10,000. And what that means, uh, once you plug it into the rest of the equation, is that the number n is approximately one. So we are it. We could be it, or there might be another. And of course, these numbers can be off by a factor of 10 or 100. But it, it doesn't change the, the story in the sense that we don't live in a galaxy that's teeming with intelligence societies. The, the closest civilization to us, if there is one, isn't just five or 10 light years away. And it's just a matter of pointing the dish and talking to them. Uh, if we are it, well, that's it. There's a hundred billion or so stars in our galaxy. Uh, you know, even with each star having on average 10 planets or planetary bodies, large and small, you're talking about um, a trillion uh, planets in our galaxy. Well, that is, that's an astronomical number, but we could still be it. There could, there would be many planets across the galaxy that have life, oceans teeming with beasts, jungles with very weird, gigantic sleuths. Uh, but something that has created that's creating tools, changing its environment, turning into an advanced civilization, that is exceedingly rare. If the terrestrial example is generalizable. And so, so I don't expect us to really have a good chance of finding ET within our own galaxy. Now, even if each galaxy, and again, the galaxy is a swarm of about 100 billion stars that we're part of, but you know, the nearest big galaxies Andromeda it's about 2 million light years away. Uh, even if each galaxy out there, and we, are, we know of about 100 billion galaxies in the universe, if not more. So that's sort of a lower estimate. Um, even if each galaxy only had one civilization on average, you're still in very good company. I mean, there'd be 100 billion civilizations out there. Okay. But uh, of course, they would be much harder to talk to or to hear from because they would be so far away. And they would have had to transmit to us all the way back then for us to even hear anything now. 
Okay. Andromeda galaxy, for example, is 2 million light years away. Let's say we pointed out radio telescopes to Andromeda, which I wish that we did more consistently, uh, and we detected something, well, that would be a signal that would have left Andromeda 2 million years ago. So, well, if that civilization lasts only a million years, say, <laughs> which would be optimistic, it's gone. It's gone by the time you receive the signal. So there's no point in answering. <laughs> okay, having said this, who knows what a civilization that is even just a little bit more advanced than ours is capable of. I mean, technology has made such incredible progress in just a few centuries. Um, it's exponential. Uh, you know, what, what, does it, what is a civilization that is a thousand years ahead of us or 10,000 years? or even 100,000 years ahead of us. What is that civilization capable of? I mean, maybe they've actually mastered by then wormhole tra travel. They can travel through space-time. They could be here without us detecting them. There could be all kinds of things that could be possible with, with you know, advances in technology. Arthur C. Clarke famously said, um, you know, any technology that is sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, I think our technology would, would come across as magic <laughs> to a lot of people in the past. Okay. Uh, I mean, they get up to speed pretty quickly, but, uh, you know, it's yeah. quite impressive. Uh, but imagine being in advance of us by 10,000 years. Okay. Um, so that could be, you know, I mean, we could be apples and oranges. So um, looming over all this is something called the Fermi paradox. Enrico Fermi, who won the Nobel Prize in physics in 1938 for something unrelated, he, he was working on the neutrino, discovered the neutrino. Uh, he used to say, though, that if there are so many intelligent civilizations out there, why haven't, why, why haven't we detected them? So this is known as the Fermi paradox. If there are so many out there, why don't we see them? And so there are lots of answers, so to speak, possible answers to the Fermi paradox. And it's only a paradox if it is indeed true that there are many out there. If there are many out there and we don't detect them, well, that's the paradox. And, and so here are some possibilities. They, they are too smart to bother with us. Carl Sagan actually used to say, the best proof that there is intelligent life out there is that they haven't tried to contact us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but joke aside, that there could be any number of reasons. It could be the technology is a mismatch. You know, they, they are actually being very loud and visible, but not in the way that we're looking at the universe. Uh, so there's a range of excuses for why there could be many out there, but somehow we don't seem to see them. And that's called the Fermi paradox. But if there are actually very few out there, <laughs> which is what I'm suggesting is the actual reality, uh, then there's no paradox. There's no paradox because th there aren't many out there. So, so I guess the, 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 the take-home message of this is this. I mean, it's in spite of how open-minded we want to be, 
about uh, allowing the idea of there being many civilizations out there. It, it could well be that for all intents and purposes within our galaxy, we, we might be it or there's another, but then, you know, the average distance between the two would be 50,000 light years or so. Um, and uh, we're, we're profoundly alone. Uh, nobody is going to come rescue us or show us how the warp drive works. Uh, at least I'm not expecting anybody to come. Uh, I don't expect us to detect the signal with our current SETI search of nearby stars. I mean, you still want to do that just because, hey, I could be wrong. <laughs> okay, of course. But you still want to do that to cover your bases. And after all, you, you know, you never know could be just lucky as well that's the other thing uh but uh otherwise you know we we could be it and so on the other hand looking at other galaxies i think our chances are much better we, we could actually be looking at one or a few intelligent civilizations per galaxy by pointing us our dishes to those nearby galaxies and even though they would be too far away for us to have a conversation with that's okay. Maybe the, one of them has become loud enough by now that we will detect radio leakage or optical laser leakage or some signature of their presence out there uh, that could tell us, hey, we're not alone. Um, and by the way, those people seem quite advanced <laughs> because they're, they're making an awful amount of ruckus uh, for a galaxy that far away. We should probably lay low. <laughs> Until until we beef up uh, our defense, nice. you know the 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 take home message of this is if it's true that we're really alone in our galaxy. Well, first of all, we still have a magnif magnificent galaxy to go explore. I want to see these planets with oceans and jungles and and other marvels of their nature and their their wildlife. Uh, you know, there are planets with primitive life, planets with, with more sophisticated life. Nobody is by definition quite intelligent yet, but hey, you know, uh, I'd love to be on a planet with dogs. Uh, okay. Uh, so that's, that's what, what awaits us out there, and I think why we should still go out there. But the other thing is that we should really... Take care of our own planet you know i mean we we live we are even though we might be the i mean even though we are the product of you know biochemistry and a large amount of chance uh we are we are a rare outcome of life and we should we should cherish life we should honor the fact that we are humans we should we should live in harmony with each other and all these wars that we're seeing you know being fought for for such non-universal reasons. I mean, none of these concerns have any, have any cosmic dimension to them. They they are they are small. They are they are tough, deadly wars for 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 narrow thinking minds, is what I think they are. And of course, even people with 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 broad thinking minds are, are caught into these. Uh, but none of these wars are worth fighting. There, there has to be a better solution because humanity is really something that we should cherish in any form it comes. We have to get along. 
we're all sharing this planet uh you know that's 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 my personal view of it fair enough i know this is all science but how much fun is it to drive the mars one and moon one humvee rover uh too much fun to admit to but uh what you're referring to are these two vehicles that we have on devon island at this point but which we had to drive over sea ice uh, in the winter to get to devon island devon island where we go every summer in the arctic is the largest uninhabited island on earth and it's a place that uh that i call mars on earth and it's in this corner of the arctic that is not just cold but also very dry all of alaska pretty much is tundra cold but relatively wet most of siberia is taiga and tundra either pine conifers pine trees evergreens and cold but also pretty wet or grassy cold and also pretty wet Uh, it's it's hard to find on earth real estate that is frigidly cold and at the same time very dry where it rains very little most of antarctica is like that but then it's covered in ice Uh, devon island where we go every summer in the arctic so it's in north america is is the largest expanse of rocky polar desert on our planet it's an island it's the largest uninhabited island on earth i think i said that it's about the size of west virginia or croatia if you are in europe and that means more um and when we are on devon island we are the population of devon island so i've been going there every summer for the past 25 years in fact ever since i moved to california after grad school ironically I, I've moved to California 25 years ago. I've yet to spend a summer at the beach in California. I don't know what, I don't know what surfing is. I've heard of it, but it's, uh, it's, it's just a concept to me. Because I've spent, I've spent all my summers since I moved to California on this godforsaken island in the Arctic uh, called Devon Island. But it's Mars on Earth. It's, a, it's an incredibly attaching... Uh, piece of bleak barren desert and um it's got first of all an impact crater that's huge meteor crater that most people are familiar with uh is about point well 1.2 kilometers across you know 0.8 miles uh this thing houghton crater on devon island houghton uh is is uh, 20 kilometers in diameter so something like uh you know 13, 14 miles across. Um, it's, um, and then the, the place is surrounded by canyons and valley networks, gullies. It's, it's Mars on Earth. So uh, we've set up a base there, a research base that we occupy every summer. We set up a base there since 1997. Uh, our project has now become one of NASA's longest running research projects at the surface of the earth i sometimes joke that we never took off (laughs) we're still on earth but the truth is we go there to really plan the future exploration of the moon and mars and one of the things we do is to learn how to drive to do long road trips on mars and on the moon as we will in the future in the near future 
these road trips are, are still not often done on Earth. I mean, you're talking about living in a essentially an RV of, of sorts, but an all-terrain RV that in which you would work, live, sleep, drive, eat uh, for days on end and roaming across the wilderness of Mars or the moon, you know, off-roading. And, and of course, you know, people off-road for sports, but they don't really live inside their vehicle weeks on end. And then they're still using trails. Uh, we're talking about being completely in the wilderness here. And then you never are able to do that in a place where you never run into a fence or somebody's property line. Here we, we, we do. We do live in a place where we never run into a property line or a fence. Uh, so so it's, it's quite incredible. Plus, in the summer, the sun is up 24 hours a day. So, so we can really do long road trips this way. Uh, but what I was getting at is uh, we have to build some experience on how to, to do these uh, rov- roving expeditions and um, so that we can derive, we can design the proper rovers for the moon and Mars in the future. So that's where the Humvees come in. We needed at first one Humvee to serve as our, you know, test bed. So these are not your regular street Humvees. These are military ambulance Humvees with a tall cab in the back where you can stand with four litters that you can sleep on, um, you know, bunk beds. Uh, And they're modified, of course, military ambulance Humvees. And they were donated to our project by AM General, the maker of Humvees. So the first one we got to Devon, the Mars One, has been great, except that we've often got it gotten it stuck in mud. Uh, on Mars, it would be sand dunes, uh, and so we we wanted to have a second Humvee, which AM General also gave us. And the first one was pulled from the first Gulf War. It had gone to Iraq. I mean, Kuwait, uh, Operation Desert Storm. Uh, but the second one was pulled from Hollywood and it's been in a bunch of movies. I can like the rock in the movie, the rock Nicholas cage at some point pulls Sean Connery out of prison. And they're having a conversation in the back of this Humvee. It's, it's, it's our Humvee. Okay. <laughs> our Humvee now. Uh, so anyway, the second Humvee, we, we were bolder in how we got it to Devon Island. We decided to drive the length of the Northwest passage. And so that turned out to be pretty epic in a, and a very bad idea, <laughs> but a movie was made out of it, out of our journey. So if you have nothing better to do, you can you can check it out. It's called Passage to Mars. But all of this is to is to really try to understand better how we would plan an efficient, safe, and uh, productive uh, pressurized rover trip on the Moon or Mars in the future. And these are coming. These are just round the corner. Um, and we, we are hoping that all the lessons we've learned from Devon Island are going to be applied in the design of these future vehicles and missions. That's amazing. Flip side that coin, what was it like to be the pilot for the first field test of NASA's space of NASA's surface exploration vehicle? Yeah. So meanwhile, uh, at NASA Johnson Space Center, uh, they had come up with this amazing contraption. Think of a vehicle that has a cockpit a bit like the front of a helicopter with giant uh 
glass bubbles. And then the whole thing is sitting on a chassis with uh, six pairs of wheels. And the wheels can be configured in such a way that they can form a circle so that you can turn around, not by making a U-turn, but literally by just flipping around, uh, in, you know, like turning on the dime. And it, it, it was a prototype or concept for a pressurized rover that we would use on, on the moon or Mars in the future. So at some point, uh, NASA Johnson Space Center, this, this was the design of uh, the robotics group of Rob Ambrose, but also uh, it was a baby of uh, Mike Gernhardt, who was a shuttle astronaut. Uh, they, they had this wonderful test program of this rover uh, initiated and carried out in Arizona. So I was privileged to be essentially the first scientist pilot of the first field test of this thing. Um, and it was an amazing thing. It, it, you know, it, it was very easy to, 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 to drive. I was going to say it's easy to fly. It's easy to drive. The way I described it, it was a helicopter that was very stable. Like you could, you know, I mean, once you're in the cabin of this thing, it's like you could let go of the controls and you wouldn't crash. So, so it'd be like being in, in ground effect in a helicopter that's in a hover, but very stable. So superb visibility of the surroundings, very nimble, very maneuverable. Uh, and at the same time, with plenty of, you know, creature comforts, like a little bathroom in the back, some bunk beds for you to rest, some privacy curtains for you to draw, uh, a little food galley, food prep galley, um, a place that would be an airlock of sorts, and then some suit ports at the back, where you would don your spacesuits, which are hanging outside the vehicle uh, along, you know, on the back wall of the rover. So you, you would enter your spacesuit by opening the backpacks of your spacesuit into the cabin of the rover. Um, and of course, the suits are, are sealing you from the outside. And you, you close the backpacks behind you, and now you are, you're off, you can, you know, unlatch and go. So anyway, this pressurized rover program was very exciting. And I, you know, it turned out to be one of the only pieces of hardware that was really forward looking that came out of the Constellation program, which is the effort to go back to the moon under uh, President George Bush. And then it became a, an asteroid explorer type machine under President Obama when we were now headed to explore an asteroid with a crew. And then now it's back to serving as a prototype for future pressurized rovers on the moon with the Artemis program. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of part one of episode 217. Be on the lookout for part two on Thursday, January the 4th, 2024, and I promise we have some great material left to explore. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode so far? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up today for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. 
We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to Baron Levis's merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, welcome to 2024. Don't make a resolution you cannot keep. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.